Hey, Blinders, on this week's show, Sophia Coppola's Priscilla hits theaters. We chat about Five Nights at Freddy's winning the box office. And David Yates joins us to talk about pain hustlers. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 286 of Real Blend, a podcast that costs less to produce than an episode of She-Hulk. My name is Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing director here at Cinema Blend and a co-host of the Real Blend podcast. And on this week's show, Sofia Coppola's new film, Priscilla, is going to hit theaters. We're going to chat about Five Nights at Freddy's, uh, first off, winning the box office, and whether it is saved cinema as we know it. Uh, and David Yates is going to join us to talk about his new film, Pain Hustlers, which is available currently as we speak on Netflix, starring Emily Blunt and Chris Evans. Um, a lot of show to get to this week. Let's start with the boys. I'm going to start with Jake Hamilton a Fox 32 in Chicago. Hello, Jacob. How are you, sir? Hey, buddy. Look at my coffee mug. What do you got there? Oh, that's awesome. Look Camp that. Crystal Lake. Yeah, I like it. Friday the 13th. It's November now, dude. Do you not think that Friday the 13th exists in the month of November? We pay less attention to them. Speak for yourself, sir. (laughs) It's time to move on. It's Thanksgiving. And we might actually set up Christmas this weekend. We like to jump way far You're those people. Yeah, we are those people. I know. But we're proudly (laughs) those people. I like it. Uh, Kev McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. is joining us as well, too. Kev, how are you, sir? Yeah, I mean, I had my Christmas tree up through april of this year i think yeah. it was so i'm I at a no certain ju- point you have to ask yourself why take it down no judgment whatsoever I, I mean the mariah carey video that was released today or yesterday were uh, i think we're officially in the christmas season according Wait, to mariah carey does she have a new song is that what the problem is well, no, the I think does she, she just, have a new song why would well, she create a new song well, I think the so I think she was just announcing that you know we are in the we are in the season. And she, gotcha. she's in a block of ice, and uh, these people in Halloween masks are using hair blowers to melt the ice, and it, and and you hear that, and then when yeah. the ice melts, she sings the opening 
of uh, All I Want for Christmas. And I think okay. I think it's like, I think it just says like, it's time. Which yeah. already, by the way, has apparently broken back into the Billboard charts. Uh, and uh, speaking of Billboard, shout out to Blink-182 for making yes. number, number one number on the one. Billboard 200 and read Sean's interview on Cinema Blend. Uh, which Both of Tom, y'all's interviews. So like, yeah. I'd, I'd like to, sh- Kevin, yours did, didn't yours do massive numbers on YouTube? Sean, yours, yours was, was retweeted and shared by Tom himself. Like you guys, you guys did, I mean, what, the, the coolest part about this was, was seeing uh, Kevin and Sean's success by, by interviewing Tom was how much it meant to you guys. I thought that oh, was, yeah. that was, a, it's not just cause like, I'm not trying to, this is going to come out worse than I intended, but like we've all have, have done interviews that like have done well. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Like, I'm glad people enjoyed that. But like when you do an interview that means something to you, mm-hmm. that, that has a, a substantial part and, and, and why we love what it is that we do. And then people connect with it. It does well as, as it did with, with both Kevin and Sean's interviews. I mean, they both did insane, massive numbers. And I just think that's really cool that, that that interview, it could have done four views and it still would have meant a lot to you guys. But the fact oh, yeah. that it did the numbers that it did, uh, I just thought that was really cool to see. And also, like, you know, and thank you for saying that. And also what's interesting about, you know, we're a movie podcast. So the reason why Sean and I are both interviewing him, as we've said, it was for Monsters of California, which is available on on demand. If you haven't seen it. if you're a Blink fan or just, you know, sci fi fan or Amblin fan, mm-hmm. uh, as Sean's article will tell you, it hits all those notes. And uh, it's really interesting. And, and just yeah, as you said, Sean, you know. Not many people have had a better October than Tom DeLonge with the release of the new album and his new movie and, and his guitars are back in stock, which I'm excited about. So and the yeah. tour, they're going to tour all through next year. So I got tickets. I got tickets, too. I'm Can't excited. Yeah. Yes, very excited. Uh, let's say hi to Gabe Kovach before we move on with the program proper. Hello, Gabe. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm wearing the most yellow hoodie I can find. <laughs> you know, so. what's interesting, Gabe, so I went to George Mason University if I you look that. at the if you look at the script, well, I, I, obviously, yeah, but like green and <laughs> green and green and yellow are our colors. So you and there I are go. basically uh, a GMU advertisement right now. Shout out to the- Mason. Yeah. Well, these are all the reasons why you should be watching us on YouTube. Uh, Sean and here, I look like we did not go to college whatsoever. We did not. I'm wearing, I can't, surprise, surprise! I'm wearing a Marvel T-shirt. Uh, Wait, and Sean went to uh, uh, Marvel Cinematic University, oh, right? Oh, I, I did. MCU. Well done. Yeah. And we're right. in some trouble right now. If you listen to uh, if you listen to Variety, um, we yeah. we're not going to dig into that. I kind of think that that news is. A little bit old, but it but is. We all collectively do not agree with. The, basically, if you're listening to this on Friday, there was a story that came out earlier this week that they're potentially thinking about reviving uh, Downey Jr.'s Iron Man and Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow, which obviously they both died in Endgame. Spoiler alert. Uh, but uh, yeah, that uh, we all collectively on our text thread today sent the article with just a, an enthusiastic no. Yeah, that, uh, because idea. yeah, the, I'm, cu- I'm curious how much of that was. That's the sort of thing that someone maybe says and it lasts half a second in a boardroom, yeah. but then it hits a journalist and a journalist is like, well, I have to write about all of yeah. that because like, mm. it's just the biggest idea ever. But it was like, oh, what if we brought them back? It's like, no, 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 no that would ruin. like it could just have been that in the room, but it's a story. Mm. That's how it goes. Because yeah. honestly, my friend, like God help if, you know, if once the actor strike ends and uh, Robert Downey Jr. has to start making the rounds uh, <laughs> on his Oscar campaign. God help every the oh, fact that every single Lord. every single report is going to go. So are you coming back? Like, like I feel like the 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 are you coming back as Iron Man narrative just died down because he <laughs> showed what he's capable of in Oppenheimer. Yeah, and of course now it's just ramping back up. 
Oh my and we said, God. we've said it on the show before, but you, the, these these movies and these stories need stakes. And yes. you cannot you cannot undo. But then again, we also argue that we're excited about Wolverine showing up in Deadpool three. And apparently we saw but a story it's this a different. Week. It's a different Wolverine than Logan and Logan. Apparently, from what an article I read this week, I don't know who to give credit for to it. But uh, Logan is canon, apparently, mm-hmm. um, in this specific story. So. It'll be interesting. But either way, it's I feel like a hypocrite. I'm like, I'm excited about Wolverine, but I don't want to see Downey Jr. come back as Iron Man because his yeah. death was so poetic. And so was yeah. Wolverine's death, though. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We should. Yeah. Uh, if you're on YouTube, give us a like and a subscribe. Of course, we're available all the different places you can get your podcast needs met. And don't forget to sign up for Roblin Premium if you want an ad free version of the show and a newsletter this week, which I'm not quite sure I'm going to write about just yet. But an idea will come to me very, very soon. I have an idea for you. Oh. Do you want to share I, it now or do you no, want to? Well, I'm just going to say you should write about AI and films. And 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 because we saw the story the other day about uh, President Biden watching um, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One and that adding to the awareness of AI and how okay. movies have the ability to give us awareness of real life situations, but maybe emotionally give us more depth to them. I think it's an interesting thing when we watch films. I learn a lot of history from watching movies, not that movies are historically accurate, but I think at the end of the day, you know, the beauty of a film is if you're immersed in it so much emotionally that a certain aspect of real life hits you in a different way. And you walk out of that film thinking about life in a different way that not to say the movie was the reason why it makes you more aware of something, but it could give you the possibility of connecting to it on a different level. So I would just be interested from an article perspective of like what real things in movies you've watched that have affected the way you feel in real life about things. I can even bring in I interviewed earlier this week, um, David. Gan, David Gan, who is the the writer of Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm. And he talked at length about he's mainly a historical writer yeah. um, and how much he paid attention to the history side of that and helping them prepare uh, for all the different things that you were interviewed going on. Him? He, I the did. Author? Yeah, that's awesome. I would have loved to have interviewed him. Did you talk yeah. about the wager? Uh, yeah, we talked a lot, a lot about oh, the wager. Actually. I, I haven't read that book. I'm dying to read it. I just yeah. got it from. Uh, the ebook borrowed from my library. Which, there you go. Is, is it confirmed that that's Scorsese's next movie with DiCaprio? Is that or is that just the kind of floating around like that's the possibility? Um, I, I read somewhere that uh, I saw a, a quote from Scorsese that he might want to co-direct that. Yes, that. because well, who, who, a lot of he, it has to take place at sea, apparently, and he's yes. not ready to necessarily do that. At right. He's going to ask he's going to ask Spielberg to do it just to be a a jerk. (laughs) And and it was funny about what what Sean is what Sean is saying. There there was a great quote from Scorsese about this and the possibility of co-directing and and essentially the idea of being at sea. If you really want to understand why it's so hard to make movies at sea, watch the behind the features behind the scenes features on Dunkirk. Filming on boats are it's a whole thing. I mean, I don't know what the wager is about, but. It's the whole process of shooting on water. Even. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, we shall figure out if we're going to get to that film soon enough. Um, But in the meantime, we have David Yates, David Yates, who has been extremely busy in the world of the well, the wizarding world, I guess, is how they put it. And he directed four Harry Potter films uh, and then three Fantastic Beasts films and is finally breaking free from that universe to branch out into kind of a topic that we've seen in a few films uh, already up to the up to this point, which is the opioid crisis and fentanyl and these drugs that people can get um, through prescriptions that are written sort of haphazardly and the people who push this uh, these types of pills and get doctors on board in order to to write these scripts um, and the 
staggering amounts of money that they uh, make as a result of doing this. Uh, Peter Berg had a film earlier this year. We had Peter Berg on the show to discuss series. Uh, oh, a series. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, and his story went after more the effect of the drugs on the families and how it can tear people apart and and, and really get them addicted to the pills. Uh, pain, pain, uh Killers, painkillers, painkillers uh, is is Berg's series, and then Pain Hustlers is David. Pain Yates Hustlers, movie. God, God, thank you very much, Kevin, for clearing that up. Uh, pain Hustlers, as you can tell from the title, is a little bit more focused on the people who are in the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical sales side of it. Um, the racketeering, Blunt, yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, Emily Blunt plays a person who gets into the sales side of it. Um, Chris Evans is the guy who recruits her for it, and. Uh, and but it was really interesting to hear what got him interested in this story and the different places that he went to film it and and getting away from the VFX and the green screen of the wizard world to get back to shooting practically and getting a little bit back to his roots. And then there's a really fascinating aspect of this interview that you guys will hear uh, where the day that we got David on the show, uh, coincidentally, it was um, the day that they announced this documentary that Daniel Radcliffe is supporting uh, about David Holmes, the stuntman who uh, was injured on the set of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part One. And Daniel Radcliffe is doing a documentary. It's going to HBO about this stuntman. He was a stuntman for Daniel Radcliffe throughout the Harry Potter series. So we got we got David's um, take on working with David Holmes and the day of the accident and, and the documentary. So I, I thought that was a really great bit of this conversation. So uh, I'll let you guys hear it for yourself. This is David Yates, the director of uh, Pain Hustlers, in addition to all of the work that he did in the Wizarding World. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly, and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We like to focus on the craft of filmmaking and get into the the um, nuts and bolts of the process. But I kind of want to go with a bigger picture here because of something interesting that happens in Pain Hustlers. Uh, there's a moment in the story where Chris Evans uh, gives Emily's character a shot at a time when she desperately needs it. She needs a break. Uh, she begs him essentially to take a chance. And I'm curious if you have someone that you can think of who kind of did that for you at any point in the process, who maybe opened a door into this community that might not normally have opened. Do you know, it's so interesting. You asked that question. I, uh, last night I went to an uh, event and it, it reminded me of the very first time when I came out of film school, I had my short film under my arm to take into the world as you do to say, here I am, everybody, give me a job. I'm a filmmaker, I've been at film school. And I wrote to a guy, he was a producer, he was called Paul Kerr, he worked at the BBC, and um, he produced a documentary show for the Beeb, which was called Moving Pictures. It was a really, it was a kind of, a really interesting show that covered all aspects of the film industry, and I loved it as a student at film mm-hmm. school. So I literally, off the bat, I just, I had my short film, I wrote to Paul, I said, um, I'd like to contribute a piece to your BBC program. Um, would you employ me? I'm just out of film school. And he brought me into his office and he sat me down and I pitched what I wanted to do. And he literally gave me my first job. Wow. And, and there was not, you know, I, I'd not really done anything. And, um, and off I went and I made a piece about low budget filmmaking in the UK for the BBC. And Paul was kind enough to support me and, give me that break and open that door for me, which we all need at some point in our career. We all, we all need someone to just place that bet on us. And um, Paul was the first one to do that for me. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Yeah. You know, you know, David, I, I always find the relationship between the filmmaker and the composer to be fascinating. Um, and uh, to me, obviously with, you know, John Williams and, and the Harry Potter films, and then you look at James Newton Howard and Michael Dean Parsons here in terms of like mm-hmm. what you're dealing with as a, as a, as a, as a filmmaker, what are your conversations when you have two composers? And is, the, is that different than talking to one composer? And I guess a, a branch off that question, is there anything you learned in your process with John Williams on the Harry Potter films? Uh, I know he was on prior to you coming on as a filmmaker in the series, but you still worked with him. So it's an interesting thing to think about. Is there anything from there you still use? And then how does it work with two composers? Yeah, very good question. I mean, on the Potters, I, I used a wonderful French composer called Alexander Desplat, mm. who was an, a really gifted uh, guy, and also um, a chap called Nick Cooper. So we used John Williams' key theme, which is uh, iconic, of course, but I used two different composers um, on, on Potter for my mm. four films. And you always have... Uh, now, interestingly, with Pain Hustlers, there were two composers. They're joined at the hip in this case. The two of them are working together anyway. 
And um, it's the same, you send the same note to both of them and, and you have conversations with the two of them and they're working in partnership. And the reason the workload on pain hustlers was split was simply that they were doing other work at the same time. And I could have just gone, ah, oh, okay, you're that busy, I'll go somewhere else. But I love working with James. And um, and so we figured out a way of making it work. And two heads are sometimes better than one. <laughs> so it's, it's a very collaborative, open process. And with the Potters, um, with Alexander Desplat and with Nick Cooper, you sit down, you watch the movie together, you talk about the emotional landscape and you go through a cue sheet together to decide where the music could play best. And it's a story building process and it's always enjoyable and it's always fun. And I, I, you know, I love that part of our process. It's the music part of it is always quite exciting and thrilling when these all these talented composers come up with something that really moves or excites you and but it's a constant dialogue it's a, and james newton howard on the beast films he he scored all three beast films that i do, yeah. direct he was like immense mate he would write 20 30 different versions of each cue he was non-stop mm -hmm. for like a year so he would do other things but his engagement in the process would happen before i finished shooting the movies and he would, he just like working like that. I like working like that with him. And we would build a dialogue up over a period of months and months and months. Whereas normally the traditional industrial model, which is very typical in our industry, is your lock picture, you, um, you've, you've been doing the mix, and in comes the composer and writes the score in six weeks and you record it. It's a very tight framework. With these composers I've worked with, we, we take a slower burn. Um, Alexander on... Hallows part one and Hallows part two was a bit more in and out, you know, because mm. of, of his busy schedule. But mm. with Nick Cooper and with uh, James Newton Howard, I love this sort of long companionship that we would share as we evolved the work on the score. Just a quick follow up real fast, because I, I just heard James Newton Howard's new score for the, the Hunger Games movie yesterday and for Francis Lawrence's film. And it's incredible. Um, you said something interesting to me because on the first Potter films, Columbus does the first two. I think Koran steps in for Azkaban. You take over. But John Williams starts it. So did, did you at all ever have contact with Williams in your time of making it? Or was it specifically to splot? And like, like, how does that work when he starts the score? Well, you know, John came up with the iconic theme, the Potter theme, mm. and then every single piece of music, you know, Nick Hooper scored uh, the first two and Ale Alexander scored the second two. Mm. So I never had a conversation with John, but I had mm. weeks and weeks of conversations with either Nick on the first two films and Alex on the second two films. Mm. And, it, you know, we, we used John's theme sparingly. And then mm. there's, a, there's hours of incidental music that was written around the drama that didn't include John's theme. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, David, your editing in uh, Pain Hustlers creates this tangible energy. Um, it has a, a, a pace and an urgency of a sales call almost. Um, and I think it's somewhat vital to the success of the story. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can just discuss your approach uh, to editing here and if for any research purposes, did you go on any sales calls to, to maybe sit in and cause there's, there's a lull of waiting and then there's a hurry up and go pitch to it. Very good. Yeah. We, uh, we talked, Emily and I spoke to some farmer reps mm. 
mm. um, who had been on the ground doing the kind of things that we were presenting in the film. And um, that was quite instructive. And But in terms of the editing pace, I just loved the idea that it could feel fairly exhilarating and in the moment, and we really embraced that energy and sort of the rhythmic quality of some of it. We enjoyed Mark Day, my longtime editor, and I really enjoy that, um, the pace of it all and the speed of it. We thought it was quite fun to explore the story in that way. Mm. You know, David, I've been a fan of Colleen Atwood for years, and I've just always appreciated the the brilliance of what she does with her costume designs and things like that. And I remember doing the interview a few years ago with Denzel Washington, and, and we were talking about little details of characters that that kind of fit you into who that person is. And he goes, when I put a character's shoes on for this role, I found the character in that moment. I was like, really shoes. And so I wanted to ask you your, your relationship working with Colleen Atwood and kind of like what different little aspects of the costume designs do you feel as a filmmaker, bring those characters to life? Cause it's a lot of different things. It's rehearsals, it's script, it's performance and things like that. But I'm just curious what that relationship is like and how, how you feel about costume design and kind of how that plays into your narrative. Sure. So I've worked with Colleen four times now. So we've, yeah. we've, and, you know, the next film I make, I want to use Colleen because she's, there's no one quite like her. She's a mm. sort of serious, she's the real deal. And what yeah. I love about Colleen is she, she's bold. She'll take swings at things, which other costume designers might sort of hesitate at <laughs> doing. And I, I love that about Colleen. She's ex, there's a sort of expressiveness to her work which is sort of, and I, I thought, actually, honestly, it's just that's kind of like we're in a wizarding world, so we can take, we can sort of be elaborate and playful. But no, when we get to the contemporary world, she's just as bold, just as vivid. <laughs> and that's what I love about her. And absolutely, actors have told me that, similarly to what Denzel Washington said to you, once you start to find that costume that sort of exhibits, expresses that human being that's on the page, it helps them. It helps them land that human being in in an authentic way. And it might even modify the shape of the character in some ways. Um, it is remarkable what that process does. Um, and what I love about costume is I, I like the fact that she is courageous and mm. wants to be vivid in terms of the work. And she kind of gives, she always gives us brilliant silhouettes, actually that look fantastic in the longer, wider frame. Um, and poor Emily in, in, in Pain Hustlers had to wear so many different costumes, right. so many different costume changes. There was often two or three costume changes a day. By the end of the shoot, she, she was getting skin rash for the fact that she changed <laughs> into another funny costume. So, um, but we encourage that from Colleen because she is... Mm. She's the top of the game, the best there is, I would say. Her sleepy, her yeah. sleepy hollow work blows my oh, mind every time I watch yeah. that. Oh. Yeah, totally. She is, yeah, she's my first, she's my first go-to now. Well, there was she something is. about uh, Chris Evans' suits uh, yes. in this film that just made me not trust him. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> no, we, that, was a, that was a difficult brief, you know, to just make Chris Evans not look trustworthy and good <laughs> and sort of like the sleeves and the trouser lengths just and the color scheme as well just slightly off 
um, bad fitting suits, but somehow elegantly done as a. They were. They didn't fit him, right? They were too big yeah, on him, did. weren't they? <laughs> yeah, deliberately, he went for bad fitting suits. Um, and Colleen really embraced that. She loved doing that. Oh my God, that's hilarious. All right. Um, I would like to bring up the Matt Ellison character uh, because in, in the film, it, it humanizes the story and gives us a snippet of a, a patient, you know, who does, who admits that they got a portion of their lives back, you know, for a moment by using the pills. And I would assume in researching this movie that you could include a hundred, you know, human stories like that. So I just wanted you to talk about how, when you chose to employ that and, and what you wanted to get across with the character like that. For sure. We wanted to um, explore a victim of the crisis. I mean, there are several victims in the story, one of whom dies, a fictional character who, you know, who is staying in the Longstay Motel and um, he, he dies. But we also wanted to explore a more complex character who um, was complicit in their own relationship with drug use. Um, but who overcame it and got through it. And we spoke to a lot of people um, who were dealing with victims of the crisis and families victims of the crisis. And they said, look, it's a complicated issue, this whole use of opioids. People, Some people really do need them genuinely. And one of the difficult things that's happened since a sort of, you know, the, the push to control how these um, opioids are, prescribed is that there was a sudden um, push to constrain them. And there were some people who absolutely need them um, for pain management. And so, and also with the Matt Allison character, there was a certain, you know, he, he was very philosophical about his use of them. He actually quite enjoyed using them. They made his life easier for a while, mm. but he got, he got through using them. So it was really, we wanted to kind of provoke, present the audience with a character who he wasn't just a victim. He was, he was, there was a more nuanced journey for him through his drug use. So, and, and he had a sort of, he had a take on it, which felt to us authentic to some people's experience of using opioids. And yet, and we also serve the story of people who die, of course. Um, And typically the pattern from this story, which is quite tragic, is the doctor who's prescribing would get the patient addicted, was that would then stop prescribing for whatever reason, either they were arrested or um, or for whatever reason the insurer would stop paying. Then the person who'd become addicted to the fentanyl would need more fentanyl and they would typically go to the streets to get it cheaply. Mm-hmm. And But sometimes the source of that uh, fentanyl was bad and they would easily overdose without realizing they would die. So that's the sort of typical pattern of what would happen. That's why the death rate was so high. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we wanted to honor that with Matt, you know, Matt ultimately wanted to take the drugs, was enjoying taking the drugs, but ultimately got through taking the drugs. And, um, and that was that particular mm-hmm. story. You know, you know, David, we we have a, a, a third co-host on our show who wasn't able to be here today due to a scheduling conflict. And he sent us a question, which I, I really want to hear your answer to this because I'm fascinated. Because in the past couple of days, there's this story came out about David Holmes and the documentary that Daniel Radcliffe oh, yeah. is putting. Yeah. Yes. And Daniel yeah. Radcliffe is um, 
for people who don't know, Daniel Radcliffe's stunt double on Deathly Hallows was paralyzed. Um, and there's a whole documentary coming out where Daniel Radcliffe's going to be in the documentary with Daniel, mm-hmm. David Holmes. Can you, I'm just curious your perspective on that. I didn't know this story. I don't even remember if this was ever, I think maybe, maybe it came out in Tom Felton's book. I think it was, but what was your perspective on that story? And do you remember the day I'm, I'm assuming you do, but just what are your memories of that particular story? I didn't know this. Oh gosh. Yeah. David is a, an extraordinary man and a graceful, bright, and he very loved, you know, in the community. And he was an amazing stuntman that sort of really, you know, being a stuntman is an extraordinary job. And the people who do that generally are very committed. It takes years and years and years to train. You have to go through so many hoops and different disciplines, um, horse riding, swimming, um, gymnastics. It's, it's a really it's a real trial to even get admitted into the union to be able to do stunts. Oh, wow. And David was a, David, yeah, was basically Dan stunt double. And there was a terrible accident. I was, I was on the main unit. This was on the second unit stunt unit on the day. So I heard that it had happened and it was a, it was a, it was a wire pull, something that we did often. And um, Greg Powell, who was involved, who's, who was sort of the stunt wrangler, if you like. He sort of did all of the stunts, was with David when it happened. And I I, I heard about it happening on a walkie-talkie, and I, and David was rushed to hospital. And so, yeah, he, he was paralyzed after this terrible accident and oh. has, has, has kind of navigated a way through that with extraordinary, you know, it's been really, really difficult. And, you know, Daniel has always been close to him, to to David, and um, has always supported him and been a good friend to him throughout those movies and subsequently. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the documentary. I think it'll be, I think it'll be hard watch, but um, and David, in my experience, I, I've spoken to him two or three times in the last couple of years, and and he came to the music recording on the last Beast film and. Mm. Um, and he's just a really graceful, wise soul um, who's dealt with this tragic accident with such, um, you know, I know it's not been easy for him and he's had some real ups and downs, um, but he's mm-hmm. dealt with it in a really sort of inspiring way, I think, even though I know it's not been easy for him. But he's he's a remarkable, remarkable man, and I'm sure the documentary is going to be not just a homage to him, but also to that profession and the risks that they take for us to entertain us, to help us build our stories. Um, it's uh, We ask a lot of them. And the health and safety protocols generally are really good and effective, but occasionally things go wrong. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're not, you know, we all do our very best to make sure those standards are maintained. And, and But this on this particular day, it was... It, it, the timing of the pool and the sort of communication between Greg and Dave. I'm I'm not absolutely sure quite how it, but we changed all our all our stunts after that. It was it was it's horrible what happened to David and David and and I'm looking forward to seeing the documentary. Well, and um, it's not you know there's obviously the well, the idea of an Oscar is somewhat hollow, but but I we all keep arguing that there should be some recognition you know for the work that goes into 
into that union and, and and on those films. And so I, I hope that there's some change on that side as well, too. I agree. And I think I'm not sure where I know I've heard that often said often that why aren't we recognizing um, what these these people do for us? It's enormous. It's an enormous contribution. And um, yeah, so I think it's worth, yeah, I should check in with that. Without okay. that. Yeah. Uh, well, before we run out of time, uh, David, I'll get you out of here on this one. I I was lucky enough to come to one of your sets uh, at, at uh, Leavensdale, Leave, Leavesdale, Leavesden, 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 Leavesden. Yeah. and then tour yeah. the um, the Potter um, Museum oh, that's, that's there, and it's just an oh, incredible. Yeah. The dining hall is unbelievable. <laughs> it's yeah. so cool, unreal. Yeah. Um, and so. I I've seen sets like legitimate sets of yours, you know, that are built out to scale. And, and so it's, it's, but still with the wizarding world, you know, you're utilizing the best visual effects that are available. And I, but I just want to talk to you about if it was freeing with pain hustlers to more tell a story that didn't require, you know, that amount of crap, not that there probably aren't some visual effects sprinkled throughout it. And I'm sure they're invisible to our eye. But can it become easy to be, to, to be reliant on those tools, you know, and say the, oh, we'll punch it up in post, you know, or we'll fix that later uh, versus having to maybe run and gun and shoot what you got for Pain Hustlers? I, you know, I loved um, the fact that on Pain Hustlers, I could basically pan my camera anywhere in, in the landscape <laughs> and that everything was real and sort of <laughs> in camera. And that's exactly what I would do before making all the films in Potter and Beasts. I, I was very much earthed in real landscapes, real locations, real spaces. And so for me, it was it was liberating and fun to go back to that opportunity to just be able to film whatever you liked pretty much and not feel it needed to be composited in later or a green screen here, a green screen there. Obviously, those worlds, the Potter and Beast worlds, they require a level of design. Stuart Craig, obviously the architect of all of that. And... Um, and it's wonderful, you know, the, the museum is a real testament to that group of artists that I work with um, to create those sets and those spaces. And, and that, that in itself is a joy, the, just the architecture and sort of exploring what can be done with visual effects and set building and scenic work. Um, but you can't be being in a real world environment and being able to film what the hell you like and, actually, <laughs> and be, be inspired by the real world, you know, be inspired by a building or, a, you know, a piece of furniture, you know, um, <laughs> for me, it was, it was a real, it was a nice, uh, it made a real change. It was fun. Amazing. Well, David, we want to say thank you so much for joining us. We are, um, this podcast was created years ago specifically to talk about the craft and the filmmaking and and score and composition and everything, costume design. So thank you for for being on and taking us behind the scenes of your world and how you make your films. We'd love to get you back on again in the future. And uh, thank you for all that you've contributed to cinema. It's been, you know, you've, you've obviously been a part of everyone's lives for a long time. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's lovely to see you both. Thank you so much, as always, to uh, David Yates and our good friends at Netflix for helping set up this interview. Um, I I would definitely recommend throwing Pain Hustlers on um, if you guys want to see a really great performance by both Chris Evans and Emily Blunt. I like them a lot in it. Um, There was an, an aspect of Peter Berg's story, Pain Killers, that I found 
somewhat interesting. He's that just I don't pain think killer. Sorry, not painkiller to make it even more confusing <laughs> that he, he glanced over. He mentioned it, but kind of glanced over it, which is these extremely attractive pharmaceutical sales reps that have to go into doctor's offices and, and almost flirt their way into an appointment with the doctor in order to get this doctor to sort of come over and write prescriptions, because the moment that you get them writing prescriptions, the idea is the patients get so addicted to the pills that they can't stop coming back. And then the, the pharmaceutical reps make a ton of money. That was a small part of Peter Berg's story. This was the main focus of David Yates's story. The big issue that I want to bring up, and it's going to tie into a couple of other films right now. Is that these Netflix films have no shelf life, like zero shelf life at all. I just pulled up. Netflix um, today, like earlier today, before we were filming to verify if pain hustlers had been released yet, even. Um, and it's nowhere on the main menu at all. And I had search under pain hustlers and then it came up on the search and it had a little 10 down the bottom to signify that it was the 10th highest, you know, watched movie of the day or whatever. But if you don't actively know that these movies are coming and and to that end, like there's a David Fincher movie. That's that was that's what I wanted to say, dude. There's a David Fincher movie in theaters right now. Yes, and I, I haven't seen like it. Have you guys no, seen it? No, have not. I'm seeing so. it Saturday at one o'clock. I was going to say I was going to try to go this weekend and go see it. I don't even know if it's in a theater near me. To be honest with you, it's I playing, to... especially in my area. We're talking about the killer, by the way, for for the audience. Um, it's playing in like four theaters in D.C., but they're all spread out at like Alamo. Three in Chicago. It's it, it, and there's no like push for it whatsoever, and it, I don't think Mank got a theatrical, so maybe they worked with Fincher and gave him a theatrical on this one. But it, you know, if you remember a couple, was it last year? Knives Out. You know, we all know that you know Netflix specifically. You'll you won't really see their movies in AMC's or Regals because they're they you know there's not there's that whole idea of the adjustment of like the the theatrical window when it hits streaming that's why you're going to see more netflix films like i saw roma at a landmark or like you know things like that but knives sure. out was a special release there's because a they cinemark did. near us that that hosts all of my netflix screens. right but knives the reason why you saw knives out too in 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 amc's was because that was a special deal that they made obviously but in this case with the killer it blows my mind that there's a new David Fincher film literally in theaters right now that none of us have seen. Um, now, we could have gone to screening. Sure, I'm sure it conflicted with our schedules and things like that. But it's pretty wild to me that that movie's just out there like randomly and nobody's and talking not, about it. It's not even that. It's just when you go to the streaming platform itself, like yeah. promote your shit. Like how how would I even know if I wasn't looking for Pain Hustlers specifically? And I was just going on to the Netflix streaming service to go look for something to, to watch. And that doesn't come up. It just feels like once these movies hit, they get ignored. And, and I'm not just going to throw Netflix under the bus. I'm afraid it's the case with all of these streaming services. It feels like now you have to go with the title in mind and yeah. it's becoming harder and harder. I mean, dude, the, the fact that and correct me, I, I, I saw the list recently of the top 10 biggest netflix movies of all time and, and they include mm -hmm. movies like extraction extraction 2 and red notice maybe even underground 6 but like you know and I, I think was it tarantino recently that that talked about the fact that like they have no impact on pop culture and it's easy to hear those quotes and go oh he's just jealous because of of this or that or that. but like they don't like who is who is who is genuinely talking about red note if it, it's it's one of the biggest movies in the history of netflix 
hundreds of millions of hours watched, which means whether they watched it all the way through or not, a lot of people pressed play on it. Right. And when was the last time someone said to you, God, you know what I want to do on a, on a Saturday afternoon? I don't want to, I want to put Red Notice on again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. it's just, right. you well, know, the, great and, man. And the thing is, and I, I liked Red Notice. I, I liked the extraction films. I do, but I forget about them as quickly as I turn them on. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that there's no second life with a DVD, like with a hard copy? release well there's no there's multiple factors there's no box office story for weeks right which keeps keeps the movie in the news so like even though the killer is in theaters it's not making anywhere near as much money even to top these stories of like top tens of box office and you know oppenheimer and barbie and all these big films like we were tracking their box office so it kept that name in the news every single week and there, and this is this is also why I prefer the model of Apple um, and Disney over Netflix in terms of releasing shows like when you have a gigantic show and you drop the whole thing on Netflix and this unless you're Stranger Things, no one's like you all you watch it in a weekend and then no one talks about it unless it's mm-hmm. like some crazy phenomenon like Tiger King or something like that. But Apple TV and I'm not saying Apple TV and Disney are great at this, but they are week to week. And like mm-hmm. Apple will put a couple episodes out like that show flight with, um, no, was it flight? What was no, the show hostage, with Hi- right? Adrian? Oh, hijack. With hijack. I love hijack. Idris Elba. Yeah. And I loved hijack. My parents would text me every week at the end of the episode, essentially. And they'd be like, Hey, we just watched this episode. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. And I remember I got all the episodes because I was interviewing Idris for it. And I remember just being on the edge of my seat every single time an episode would end. And I couldn't imagine. I'm like, this must be really fun for people at home because it keeps the show alive. Sure. So if you think about like my mom and dad, they'll watch it on a whatever Sunday night. Right. And then whatever the episode does, maybe Tuesday morning, like, hey, remember that scene? I wonder what's going to happen next week. And I just think that there's something to be said about. You're right. I think it's a shelf life thing. I mean, these these massive, massive productions like The Gray Man and Red Notice and Six Underground and even Pain Hustlers and Painkiller, Peter Berg show, like all this stuff just comes and goes and there's no discussion. There's, there's nothing happening. It comes and yeah. goes unless it's written and directed by Mike Flanagan and then House of Usher is a fucking masterpiece. But did, did uh, Usher came out? And yeah, then I, I will say everyone at my, I, 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 it's, it's a case, but like everyone at my job is talking about it. Everyone is like, you know, like where, where are anyone. you? Which episode? Where, you know, like, don't talk about it. I'm only on episode. I, I have a lot okay. of people in my circle who are who are watching House of Usher. I okay. honestly well, so, forgot Usher came out and I love Flanagan. It's, I'm it's, obsessed with Flanagan. It, 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 dude, press play on, on episode one. It's phenomenal. So right. as we figure our way through this model, right, because all these studios and streamers are having this exact same conversation. Um, about the right way to get these movies in front of people. I want to bring up Five Nights at Freddy's uh, because it did domestically in its opening weekend uh, $84 million. This is it as added, of today, Sean, so not, not just the weekend. Oh, so. is it? Okay, yeah, yeah. gotcha. Uh, it added another $52.6 million, so we are recording on Wednesday right now. The film has earned $136.7 million, and I, I know the budget was, was it? 20 million or something like that yeah 20 million 20 million and it's earned 136.7 actually clarifying it's 149 million now oh okay terrific and shout out to uh the film's director who uh was only i I feel i feel weird saying only and five hundred thousand dollars but only paid five hundred thousand dollars for her work but 
she got back end points and right. she is about to earn every single <laughs> cent. So congrats to to her because I love uh, when people bet on themselves. And, now, and that's another thing that 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 streaming is missing is the back end capabilities. Sure. Because the because the back end capabilities, if you're an actor and you're promoting a movie, I'm, I'm reading Arnold Schwarzenegger's book right now. It's called Be Useful. And he talked about this in his other book called Total Recall. But the most money he ever made in his whole career of any movie he did was Twins. And twins really? was because it, it's a great story. Basically, him and Danny DeVito met with the studio head of Universal, gave up their front salary. I don't know if they made like a minimum, like a SAG minimum, whatever yeah. it was, but they gave up their front minimum, salary. Yeah. And then all, and then they took a percentage on the back end. Mm-hmm. And it is the most money he said he's ever made in his entire career Good for him. And and again, think about think about that perspective, though, in promo. If you're Arnold and you know that back end is a big deal for you. You're going to go out and promote the heck out of that film. You're going to do every interview. You're going to make it the biggest splash possible. And again, I'm not, I'm not projecting on Netflix or, or, or what these actors are doing, but if they're getting a $20 million payday up front to make a film or a $30 million payday and back end doesn't matter, I'm not saying that they're going to do press differently, but that does affect mindset a little bit. I mean, if you think about it, when someone's out there promoting a film, you want it to do really, really, really well or you're passionate sure. about it. Yeah. And you want and you know that back end is possible. I do think that there's something to be said there about promotion. Well, so why do we think that because the whole point is that Five Nights at Freddy's was also available on streaming and right. OK, fine. It was Halloween weekend. You know, people were looking for something scary to watch. I also understand that there's a generational interest in this, that like there's a younger audience that really did grow up with this video game and wanted to see it played out. But a hundred and forty something million dollars with with it being available on streaming is pretty remarkable. So uh, I have a really interesting arc that of what happened to me with this film. I haven't seen it, but. Uh, about four or five weeks ago, one uh, one of the younger writers at my station, uh, I'm a, I think she just graduated um, like literally like a year or so ago. So she's probably like 21, 22, I'm assuming. And she came up to me. and She's like, hey, out of every movie coming out this year, the one I'm most excited about is Five Night Five Nights at Freddy's. I'm like, I don't even know what that is at this moment when she explained it to me. This is probably like, I don't know, like a month or two or so. Welcome ago. to feeling old. I didn't know. And <laughs> and then I looked it up. I was like, oh, Jason Blum, this is great. And this is probably going to be a, you know, a, a big movie. But I didn't know anything about it. So I started researching it, video game, whatever. Um, then I realized it's day and date. And so I remember going up to her like, a, I don't know, like last week or week before the movie came out. And I said, how are you planning to see it? It's coming out on Peacock and uh, and uh, theaters. She goes, oh, I'm going to the theater to see it. I'm like, oh, really? That's interesting. And I thought about generationally, like, you know, it could have been so easy for her and her friends to get around the TV and just watch the movie in their yeah. home. But so she sent me a message the other day saying that she went to see it with her friends in a theater. And it was, you know, and I'm like, that is amazing to think yeah. about somebody, you know, on the younger side who had the streaming option. And that whole story arc for me was a, was an eye opening thing to learn. I'm like, wow. And then the movie comes out, has a huge box office weekend. And then I realized there's probably millions of other people who are just like her mm-hmm. who are are dedicated love this you know and so it's it's a, it, it really is a fascinating phenomenon how well this film did but then based on that story alone you can kind of understand it yeah but i think it's still case by case i think though you know certain movies are going to are going to bring people out but this one had an audience yeah i also wonder what it says i think it's a perfect storm of release window and all of that i also wonder what it says about peacock though 
So Peacock is like 24 yeah. million subscribers versus, you know, Netflix is like 240 million subscribers. And they lost a lot recently, too, I think Peacock but did. It's, it, I don't think it's as simple as that. I mean, it's also, I wonder what it says about Peacock, but also what it says about people's sort of like um, fatigue with like more subscriptions. Because a Peacock, I, I am a Peacock subscriber. They, they have uh, the Premier League and that's a major league. That's mostly what I watch there. Um, but it's like six bucks a month, I think. Yeah. And so you could pay, you could probably get a trial if you haven't, but you could pay six bucks and get this movie. But I wonder if people just don't, I wonder if there are people that are just like, I have my five or six subscriptions and I don't even want to bother with adding another one. Or like, they're like, let's just go see it in a movie theater. Like, I'm curious what a general audience member's interaction is with Peacock, given this, given this sort of perfect storm. That's a good, that's a good time of year. And it's also the horror genre. I mean, yeah, we, as, we, sure. as we've as we've seen out and also PG-13, not that that matters in horror because R-rated horror films crush anyways. But at the end of the day, like I think we can all agree here, post pandemic, one of the genres that really survived and has continued to flourish or uh, flourish is horror. I mean, it, it, it is something I mean, you have yeah, the only consistent which, ones. Honestly. Yeah, but I mean, it really is amazing when you look at the smile box office or you look at black phones box office people. It, and it's interesting to me because these are younger generations. I think I, I want to say I saw an article about the Five Nights at Freddy's audience. It was like uh, so many people were under 35. I, I, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was a large, massive chunk of the audience was under 35. And that was another thing we saw with the pandemic was younger people were continuing to go to the movies, but older audiences like my parents they don't go. And so Five Nights at Freddy's is kind of that perfect storm. It's the horror genre, the younger audience, built an audience from the video game. But you're right. The streaming apps aspect of it is really fascinating. I think Gabe is right. I think Peacock may not might not just have the translation like that. Oh, if it's on Netflix, people, yeah, that, that's everybody. Easy. Has everybody has it. Well, huh. out of the people who are uh, on the show, Jake, you're the only one who's seen it. <laughs> so oh, really? What? prompted you to press play or uh or did you go to the theater to see it i didn't go to the theater um we had a little mini um my girlfriend and i uh, a little mini halloween party here at the house uh for some family and uh her brother and came over and had already seen it had they'd already gone to the movies to see it and he said hey did you did you see five nights at freddy's and i gotta be honest with you this is the first moment in my life that I, at least i can remember where I consciously really had to pause and go, did I just miss the boat on this? Because I'm like Kevin, four or five weeks ago, I think I'd seen Five Nights at Freddy's talked about online. For the, I think initially I thought like, wait, is this like a Freddy Krueger thing that I haven't heard? Of? Like, I didn't really know what it was. I had some sort of a grasp that it was a video game and that it was being turned into a movie. But like the fact that, I remember the initial box office estimates were between 30 and 50 million. And that's what made me pause and go, wait, 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 wait. What what is this movie that's about mm-hmm. to do 30 and 50 million? And so that's what made me even I ended up doing a segment on my show where I interviewed a, um, a Columbia University video game design professor who was taking his class to the movie. And that's what even made me want to do a story in the first place. I was like, oh, I got to acknowledge this movie in some form or fashion. But it's the first time in my life where I sort of went like, yeah, I know you're joking, Sean, but like kind of not like. Am I getting older where like I'm really starting to not know what what the kids are? Well, and the the main reason the main reason I'm even remotely familiar with it is because it was a popular game when my boys were were growing up. Um, I've never heard of the game until not not that either of them played it, 
but they at least knew what it was. I, I, I've messed around with the game um, a little bit. It's very much sort of like a, it's just been around for a long time, but I want to ask you guys, how many Five Nights at Freddy's games do you think there are? Because I know we're kind of talking about it as like the game. 32. No idea. I want to say I, I know there's definitely at least two because people talk about that. Is it four? Is it Thir- PlayStation or Xbox? Thir- it's, computer, it's kind of right? it's 13? kind of on everything. Yeah, thirteen. Thirteen. 13. They're very kind of small. From what I understand, very kind of small experiences. It's not like they're thirteen fifty-hour games. Um, but yeah, it's something that's been around. I don't even know when the first one came out, but it's just sort of been around. If you play video games, it's just been around for a long time, and I think they they've been really good at maintaining interest through the horror genre. Like horror has a like low barrier to entry of like, I want to be scared. It's spooky season. You go find a thing that everyone's talking about and you don't have to be a sci-fi movie fan. You don't have to be a romance movie fan. You don't have to be you like, it's just kind of, you're looking for that thrill. And I think that brand has just been good about just staying in the mix on top of, I think Blumhouse is also very smart to know that moviegoers are interested in horror, no matter what mm-hmm. it is. And so it's this like perfect marriage of, we're going to get an audience from this franchise, but also we know that if we can put something interesting out, that is the so, horror genre, it's, I, it's going to do well. I think it's also something to be said that something like The Exorcist, which is just which is legacy horror, one of the most prestige names in in that genre, comes out and does next to nothing. Right. A uh, pretty high high profile release. I still and, maintain that. Sorry. Sorry. I thought, no, no, please. I still maintain that that's really not a franchise in the eye of people just because no, the no. just because the exorcist versus any other exorcism movie has all been muddled i think to yeah. the general audience of it's like, like it's it's same way of like you know there, there's a reason they don't keep making jaws movies like yeah. there's jaws and then there's the rest of them like Ooh, yeah. may, maybe maybe the exorcist just needs to be the exorcist they killed that brand <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they destroyed that brand. But, I mean, but they've got to make, I mean, look, it, box office wise to, you know, to budget, it actually performed perfectly fine, adequately for a horror film. It's the fact that they paid $400 million for the franchise Oof. that that makes them go, we got to make, we got to make. Is all more. they got out of that was three movies? Is that it? They're supposed to be, yeah, it's supposed to be a trilogy because the next one's supposed to be The Exorcist I'm, Deceiver. I'm, I'm curious if it comes with like something else. like do you get some sort of merchandise on your movies like what is what do, what do you what, what get merch, what merch are you gonna sell I mean <laughs> I, don't, I, think you get everything. I don't know I'm just trying to figure out I'm just trying to figure out why you thought three movies would make that much money but. and then the third one is gonna be an Air Bud uh, uh, spinoff where they're gonna, it's gonna be uh, Exorcist Retriever <laughs> nice I would love to see that <laughs> I still well, yeah, we well, we still horrifying need... is, is wait yeah. in your in your pitch is Air Bud possessed? No, Air Bud is the exorcist. <laughs> oh, oh good. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank that's, God. Good. Thank that's good. God. I was worried for a minute yeah. there. No. No. <laughs> the whole family can get involved. No, and then really quick, I, I, I would say I, I the the, the, I the, have, pow, the power of treats compel you. I was oh, trying to come yeah. up with a good line. A good line. <laughs> the the uh, paw of the Christ compels you. The paw it... of Christ compels you. So wait, Five Nights at Freddy's twenty eight percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, eighty eight percent audience score. So which is correct, Jake? Uh, it's not good. It's oh. not good. I have absolutely no emotional connection to this. Um, I, you know, if, if there, I, I, I've been told that there are Easter eggs hidden in there and certain characters pop up that make everyone go, ah, but I stand by 
it, those things are great and I'm glad that they make people happy, but the movie has to work with no knowledge of those sort of things whatsoever. It's it's not particularly well made. The The script is very sort of basic. It, it basically follows uh, a security guard who gets a night gig at what is essentially kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese type pizza place and the animatronics come to life at night and, and kill people. It's, it's you know, the, the best thing that I can say about this movie is that while uh, it doesn't work for me, I love horror. I thought it was a very sort of muted, boring, bland, generic horror film. If it serves as a gateway horror film for younger audiences, that sure. would make me really happy because mm-hmm. I'd like to think, sure, you know, you think about the, the horror films that I love. It's it's a little too PG-13 for not that, that let me retract that because there's great PG-13 horror films. It's just a little bit too meh for me. Safe. Yeah, safe's a much better word. But if like, if you're 10 years old and you love the game and this movie works for you yeah. and because of this movie... You, you you crack open the you know the the horror section on Peacock and then you go over to the horror section on HBO Max or the horror section on Netflix and start trying different things out. Yeah, which is something I think could legitimately happen. Sure, uh, that makes me really happy. So I recommend so, uh, Suspiria by that's, Luca. That's that's the next logical. Yeah, step. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, when you turn eleven, when you turn eleven, get the yeah. Suspiria. <laughs> I do. I do want to uh, just mention real quick um, because I haven't seen Five Nights at Freddy's, but uh, I, I'm very intrigued by the practical effects because I know the Jim Henson Creature Shop, I believe, was involved um, in the production of the the, the animatronics and the creatures. That fascinates me. And I and and again, I think that's probably, you know, that's something that I would just be intrigued by just to watch some, you know, practical animatronic effects. Um, and I'm, just, I'm actually really interested in learning more about the Jim Hansen um, creature shop as well. And kind of because I know that I've read interviews with the director talking about how that was involved. And I wonder what else they're involved in in terms of horror filmmaking. It's an interesting thing. I don't know. Well, we will find out how this movie continues to hold, particularly being available on streaming. Um, And in the meantime, we're going to switch on over to Sofia Coppola's new film, which is uh, platforming, I believe. I'm not quite sure how they're how the role it it's, it's, it's opening pretty wide in Chicago. Uh, is it really? I think okay. it's wide. I think this week is wide. It's so interesting. Check. There are these there are these, you know, a slate of films that, that make the festival circuit. And then it's hard to keep track of when they start to come out to other markets. Um, OK, Gabe is saying that it's going wide. Uh, Priscilla tells the story of obviously Priscilla Presley uh, and, and tells the relationship that she has with Elvis through Priscilla's eyes specifically um, and is, I think, a really fascinating study of being in the orbit of someone who is incredibly famous, but serving a different role than I think we've seen in in a lot of other biopics about, you know, about famous singers or famous artists, uh, because the way that. Sofia Coppola decides to to approach this is to. And I, and I wonder how accurate this is, although it's it's based on Priscilla Presley's own book about her life. So I have, have to assume that it's pretty accurate in terms of the experiences that she and had. Didn't she produce it? Executive produce it, Jake? I think I she, wrong yeah, she was executive have. producer. Um, and it's, yeah, and it's based on her book. So there's a separation between Elvis's professional life and his home life. Uh, and he wanted very strongly to maintain that line as much as he could, which made life very difficult for Priscilla. She essentially was 
banished to Graceland. And, you know, I say banished. She had every, you know, resource available to her there that she could want or need. But it just came with a crippling loneliness because she never really knew when Elvis was going to be coming home. He would be out in Los Angeles filming movies. He would be on tour. Um, And then one of the things I think the movie really captures beautifully is how there's a circus that surrounds Elvis. And when he comes back home, it consumes everything. It's like it's like a hurricane that comes into Graceland and it's Elvis and all of his hangers on. And and for a minute, like Priscilla feels like she's part of it, but the world is still so alien to her. Um, and I, I don't remember really seeing another like almost all of these biopics we watch are from the eyes of the artist. It's rare to see it from from somebody who's on the outside kind of looking in and how that brush with fame every once in a while makes them feel. Um, and I thought it had a, a, a tremendous, tremendous ending, which I'll leave for everybody else to discover. Um, I was blown away by the performers in this. Um, I thought that uh, help me out with the actress's first name, Kaylee Spiney, Kaylee, Kaylee Spiney. Is that how it's pronounced? She was outstanding in the film. I just thought she was incredible. Um, I haven't really I've seen her in a, in a few other movies up to this point. I've never really seen her as a lead. Um, and I, I, I thought she walked away with the entire movie. I wouldn't be surprised if she got some type of an Oscar nomination, if the movie catches on. I, I thought it was kind of like Coppola's most subtle film. I wasn't quite sh- like it, it wasn't very flashy. It wasn't very showy. Um, it didn't. I didn't think it had huge things to say about celebrity culture. Uh, I was waiting for a little bit more analysis of it. But while I was watching it, I was I was thoroughly entertained by the performances and another look into Elvis's life that, again, so different from what Baz Luhrmann just gave us. Um, And even though that was kind of seen through the eyes of a Colonel Tom Parker, uh, but showed the more flashy, gaudy stage presence driven side of Elvis, I thought this was a really intimate look at the kind of life that he had with Priscilla, um, that the two of them uh lived together kev what were your thoughts on on this film and how it played out yeah i think intimate is perfect word for it i mean it's like you're a fly on the wall in very private moments uh, of what are one of the most famous two of the most famous people on the planet you know and i think um it's an interesting look And, and like you said the difference between that and baz Luhrmann's film are you know it that's what's so great about filmmaking right i mean you look you know these are different stories of course but you know you know priscilla was 14 when she met elvis he was 24 and one of the interesting things about watching this film is watching priscilla's parents try to understand what's going on and allowing their daughter to go off with elvis and it's a really interesting thing to watch and and you you know I think Sofia Coppola does an interesting job of building this concept of Priscilla being an older soul um uh, is somebody you know she definitely I I would argue by watching the movie felt like she had an older soul to her and um I I found their chemistry to be very interesting Jacob Elordi um obviously you know him most from from Euphoria a really talented incredible actor Huge film fan, loves and just based on what I've seen from interviews of his, he's really big into filmmaking and just loves film and and movie making. And it's one of the things that's really interesting about this film is I remember asking him at the press junket was 
there's a lot of different uh, moments where they show covers of records and covers of photos of like classic things that Elvis had done. And Jacob had to go and take all those photos and do all of those records. Mm. And he did them in character, which I thought was an interesting thing. I mean, again, like it makes sense. He would do it in character, but you know, a day or two would they would just take all these photos and he would be in full character doing the exact pose that Elvis did on this record or that record. Um, the production value was incredible, but it's also a very, it's a very, it's a very uh, small, intimate film. It's, mm-hmm. it's very, you know, it's not a lot of, not a lot of stage presence moments. It's really just There's in no music. Well, is that, well, none right. of Elvis's music, no big stage right. shows, which yeah, you they might expect. Yeah, they didn't well, have because it wasn't allowed. They, they, they the all prevented them from from doing. Oh, it. Right. no kidding! Really, is that yeah. the reason? Oh, yeah. oh interesting. Right. interesting. Which is what's the what is it? Anachronistic is the word, Jake. The music. Yes. Uh, okay. Um. And so they the music was written around that, but yeah, they didn't use. From what I understand, you couldn't use any of the classic Elvis, which I actually thought was a really interesting way to do it because. Yeah. Why would you hear his music while we're while we're in these moments where like we're just yeah. in his bedroom? Or, I mean, it's possible someone could play it on the radio, but even like down to the moments where they'll, they'll just mention the colonel like, oh, the colonel's on the phone. And yeah, like, isn't there only there, there's only like one or two mentions very, of, very of Tom Parker. But yeah, wait, does Elvis's uh, estate, do they back the Baz Luhrmann? I, they, they very they must much have. so. Yeah. They must now, have. now, no, remember. And yeah, they did. But I don't. From what I remember, and I could be wrong, we were all Graceland because that's where we did our interview with Tom Hanks for for the film. From what Which I shows me that they backed. Mm-hmm. But from they what backed I understood, film, from what I understood from that, as especially when the film was being introduced, they weren't involved at all in the making of the movie and had no ties to it in that regard. The movie was then sent to Priscilla and Lisa Marie, and I think they watched it, loved it, and then decided to come out and help promote I, and back I, the film. I, right. I think I think he I think did say. Well, I think he did say that they were they allowed him in to do the research and what he like writing and, and creating like like they said he was around a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't okay. know. I can't say exactly when they would say they signed off on it or didn't. But I think he was very much involved with the family while he was developing it and at okay. least giving him access to materials and archives and stuff. Yeah, it just, it just it just sounded like I remember for some reason it sounded like they just like they like if they were involved they saw the film and then they wanted to support it because they loved it so much and thought because sure. didn't Priscilla or Lisa Marie or someone was on stage saying that they felt Elvis's presence coming through Austin Butler's that. performance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a very different performance. Obviously, I think Jacob's performance is incredible. Kaylee is amazing as Priscilla. Um, there's a lot of internal. Uh, performance happening with her and I, I genuinely believe they do a really good job because the whole time you're watching it you're thinking to yourself how can these parents let this 14 year old girl go off with Elvis they and, and do do a, a pretty good job of at least establishing because Elvis was in the military at the time they do. and yeah. Priscilla's father was in the military and they had that link um, you're right. The age difference is, is significant. It happened. You know, it's a legitimate thing that happened. So you can't really gloss over it. But she um, handles it well. I thought that Sophia did a good job because anytime you're watching a movie and you're having a moral question in your mind, I love when a film is already a step ahead of you. Like, I'll have a question and then a minute later it'll be answered on screen because she yeah. knows Sophia Coppola is such a phenomenal filmmaker. And shout out to the Bling Ring if you haven't seen that one of her best movies. Uh, Marie Antoinette obviously lost in translation. The Beguiled, great director. But I do find it interesting that like that is a very interesting push pull as an audience member because you go, sure, that's a that's really strange that she's fourteen. And so it's a really so Sophia handles that really well. I thought. 
Jiggy, where'd you land on this one? Uh, it, it didn't work for me, to be honest okay. with you. Um, I felt like it didn't really have anything to say that I didn't already assume was the case going into it. Okay. Uh, you know, I think when people hear about, you know, this movie about their relationship told from Priscilla's perspective, there is this expectation that there is going to be some sort of shocking revelation that we haven't heard of leading up to this point. And I got to be honest with you, everything that is presented in the film ha that happened between them, either I kind of already knew or quite frankly, just assumed that that was the case. Uh, it Look, there, there are a lot of things that uh, that weren't great about their relationship. But I also think either it's one of two cases, because here's the here's the thing. Elvis has been gone for what the better part of half a century. I don't think she is out to do anything to tarnish the man's legacy, whether it be through her book or through her participation in this film. So I don't think, you know, her participation, like she's not going to put all of this salacious, horrible, terrible thing. She's not going to put all that out there about him right now. So all of the things that are presented that were wrong about their relationship, it felt either like either A, it wasn't quite that bad, or it either was worse than the movie is letting on and she's just not willing to, to tell us the full truth. What I mean by yeah. that is like, you know, it implies well, it's that he had a story too, right? I mean, she yeah. has every right to protect yes. herself, or sure. Yeah. But then, but then, but then it's, it, it, you know, the, the, for an example, like, you know, it showed that he had a temper. He would throw a chair against the wall. But like, by no means does it imply that he was ever physical with her. Like, he would go off and shoot films, and and he cheated. Yeah, and he got her, uh, you know, like kind of like he got her hooked on these pills, but it also seemed like she never really was super hooked on them. The movie never really goes into just how much. It seemed like she like enjoyed what they did and maybe took advantage of them, but it never really dives into that. So I felt like there were a lot of aspects of the film that like it would tip its toe into and then never really go any further either because there was no further to go or because it was afraid to go there and even you know the the big point of conversation being the age difference uh she was 14 when they met he was 24 and baz Luhrmann's film i think it comes down to a, a single line in the movie where they say something about him being 10 years older but they never talk about what the age difference is even in this film i felt like it was touched on in the beginning uh the, the age difference and they're at one point in the film they walk into a room together and someone in the room says oh she's a she's a child or something like that mm. and then it lets it go and then it just can sort of I, moves can on I push, can I push back because and I, and I won't this is not a spoiler but see I think the age is is present throughout the whole movie because the whole story and for this you know basically w when she goes to kind of live with Elvis she's finishing high school and there's this whole part of the storyline where Elvis is basically checking on her to make sure she's doing her schoolwork and then she has to do this and this. I, I felt like I was always constantly reminded that she was a teenager. But yeah. I mean, I, but, but to Jake's point, there are a lot of things they do hit on, you're right, that they just kind of like throw well, out yeah. and then, you know, and, but, and, and but the age, like, I, I, I always felt her age, but the movie okay, doesn't, 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 the movie does take place over, over a period of time. It's period over a period of time. Over 10 and, years. And she so. has, she has stood by the fact that while they met when she was very young, that, um, and, and this is sort of touched on in the film, that they weren't really truly physical together until she was substantially older. Yeah, okay. they have literal, um, literal scenes in the film where, like, 
he won't, he'll, he'll he won't stop. sleep with yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I thought the film was fine. But I well, sort of walked out going like, was that it? Was that was that the big story that like everyone is waiting to be told? Because I kind of just it didn't really. I, I, like, like, and you, I feel like you said this earlier, Sean. It didn't really have anything to say. Well, See, and I'll I, add I, this I, much. I felt like I felt like I was just in the moment with them. I, I kind of just liked living in that in that story. It, it, not that it, I walked away with any profound answers. I just thought it was fascinating to sit in a room with Elvis and Priscilla and just watch them on a day to day basis doing normal things. I, I think the, to me that was the appeal was seeing Elvis in this home life almost yeah. in this, in this like non like they're so far removed from the stardom, but then Sophia just drops in these little, little things about like, Oh, he's going on tour. Like Jake said, like he'll be in the newspaper for filming a movie and possibly having an affair. Like I kind of like that. Sophia was like playing with those things, but never kind of like saturated the film with the stardom. But the difference, and I, I think I a little bit get what Jake is trying to say with this, because this is one thing I thought was missing from it. I, I would think that Sofia Coppola would have a lot of commentary of g- being around famous people, you know, as you grow up kind of thing. And I wanted her to bring a little bit more of mm. the, of the, the ramifications of that. Um, I think it's, I think it's t- talked about in the movie, you know, with, with what Priscilla's going mm. through. But I think, Pris- I think that Sofia Coppola, if she's going to take on this story, would have some really interesting things to say about that. And I'm not quite sure that they made it into the film. Um, so I don't know if that was her intention mm-hmm. then, you know, I, but I, I think I thought going into it, Oh boy, if Sophia Coppola is going to take the time to tell Priscilla Presley's story, she probably has some kind of a hook into it. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe I just, maybe I expected something different from it. Well, but, I think um, the hook is that it is this intimate story. I think, I think it's, it's, it's like we already got the Baz Luhrmann explosive, you know, performance, you know, music, everything, Um, which is really interesting. Kind of going back to our discussion we just had, if Priscilla's involved, I don't know who owns Elvis's music, but they were obviously able to use Elvis's music in Lerman's film. I don't believe Priscilla was a producer on the film. I I need to double check that. But as a producer on this movie, it is fascinating. So I I don't know where his music uh, is within rights, but for Priscilla to be involved in the film and then still not be able to use the Elvis music is actually an interesting aspect to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Speaking of music, I want to really quickly before we get out of here today, uh, mention something that hit Disney plus the day that we we're recording, which is um, a, a 12 minute short film that actually gave me goosebumps listening to it. It's uh, it's called now and then uh, the last Beatles song. And it stems from uh, Peter Jackson's, work oh. on on the Beatles um get back uh, multi episode documentary. Have you guys heard about this now and then at yep. all? Yep. Um it's incredible what they were able to do. It's the two remaining uh Beatles Ringo uh, McCartney and Ringo uh, Starr and they talk about the fact that in 1990 they tried to in the 1990s they tried to get together uh while George Harrison was still alive and use uh, a tape recording of John Lennon uh, on a song that he was kind of banging out and got all the way through. That's largely piano and him singing. Um, but at the time didn't have the tools to isolate John's vocals uh, over the piano. A lot of times the piano was sort of overpowering his vocals mm. and, and you listen to a lot of this grainy tape 
of how they're trying to put it to uh, try at the Beatles in the 1990s were trying to figure out what they could do with it. Um, and then George Harrison passes away. So they kind of put it aside like, all right, well, that's it. We're not going to be able to figure this out. And now they jump forward to 2023 and, and Peter Jackson and all of his technology is able to isolate. Uh, he has now the tools to completely isolate the sounds on the tape and Amazing. they play John Lennon's vocals and it, uh, the, I mean, all the like hairs as, on my as body a single stood track? Up. as is an it? isolated single track. They wow. have amplified and cleaned up John Lennon's vocals. And so then Paul and Ringo were able to add new instruments mm. to it and essentially complete the what they're calling the last Beatles song. It's incredible. If you have any kind of passing interest in the Beatles or even just how musical production is made, I get pretty I get pretty uh, geeked out about stuff like that. It's terrific. And it's 12 minutes. It's on Disney Plus. It's on. It's it's terrific. All right. Um, mm. We would be remiss if we didn't take uh, a few minutes just to discuss uh, the loss of Matthew Perry, who uh, died on Saturday evening. Um, a lot of coverage about that still. But uh, personally, I wanted all of us to sort of weigh in because I thought that, you know, he's a significant comedic presence from our, our child, you know, as we were growing up, our formative years without question, friends. Um, but, you know, his film work as well, too. Jake and I were, were texting about the fact that we got him uh, for 17 again, which 17 I, don't again. Even, well, I don't even know what year that was. Do you have any idea? 2009. Uh, 2009. Love that movie. That's great. That's a great movie. From, That's a really good movie. Is that, is that Leslie Mann? Yeah. Yes, I and, and Zach Efron. Love that movie. And, and Tom Lennon, Thomas Lennon. Uh, that sounds right. That's Did he direct so it? Thomas good. Lennon directed no, it. Uh, I'm not sure, but Thomas Lennon was the guy from Reno 911 who was yeah, sort yeah. of his friend. Um, uh, that it was, that it's, so it's he's good. I went down a rabbit directed, hole. Directed by Burr Steers. Oh yeah, sure, Burr Steers. Um, I went down <laughs> a rabbit hole of Matthew Perry performances when I was doing the Bruce book because they were in whole nine yards together. And then the completely atrocious whole 10 yards. And I read Matthew Perry's um, memoir that came out just recently. And he has a whole chapter in there about the amount of time that he spent with Bruce while they were filming those movies. And and he completely admits that like the sequel is a disaster and they should never should have made it and all this jazz. But I, I came to better appreciate his comedic timing. The, you know, the, the way that he changed the pattern of, comedic dialogue the pauses that he put in the way he knew when to drop uh you know his punchlines uh he i mean, i i argue that there's a, a whole string of people who did, who talk the way that that chandler did because of what he did with that character um and so you know he not wasn't the most successful friend to break out into movies but was probably second i think he's probably second to aniston um and uh i think probably had several you know, good years left in him. I know people watched. Um, what was the Aaron Sorkin one that he did? Oh, uh, uh, Sunset Strip. Yeah, I, I know he was good that was in great. that as well too. Um, so yeah, I don't know. This one, this one was a shock. Do you? What do you guys? Uh, how did you I, guys feel when you heard the news? Well, there was something that I wanted to point out, and I, I don't remember the name of the podcast that he went on, but it was in November of last year. I think he was promoting his memoir, and he talked about how he, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase him, so this is not exact quotes, but he didn't want to be remembered just for friends or that, that the first thing that's mentioned when he passes away, he didn't want it to be friends. We aired that um, clip where, because yeah. my, my, whenever my producer was building the segment, she started with a clip of friends. And I said, Hey, there's this clip of yeah. him on stage saying, 
when I when I die, I don't want the first thing to be mentioned right. to be friends. So I said, like, he how how many times do you have someone on video right. saying that? I was like, so like out of respect to him, we should we can't start the segment with a friends yeah. clip. We can't. That was, and, and I was pretty. And when I was on the air that day, the the day I think it was Monday after because we were yeah, covering because he passed Saturday. I, I was very adamant, and every time I did a hit. That I said that he said this mm. because he and he and he even I think the quote even goes on to say I'm going to I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he was going to work the rest of his life basically to mm. to prove that that's not the first thing that you should mention about me when I pass. Interesting. Essentially. And, interesting. And, and the, but but to to give it more context, he's talking about the work he was doing with sobriety and helping people mm. um, there. You know, he that's what he was most passionate about. And the thing that he, it sounded like that was what he wanted his legacy to be, which was if someone comes to him and asks for help, that he would give offer that. And I think, you know, his sobriety journey, which is talked about a lot, I'm assuming in his book, I haven't read his book. I'm actually going to I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and he narrates his own yeah. audiobook. Um, and it's funny, I, like I've gotten into a whole audiobook phase. I'm going to do the Michelle Williams, who just uh, narrated Britney Spears's book and all these things. And Jada Pinkett Smith just narrated her book. But to hear they, it would be really, really interesting to listen to Matthew Perry's book now, I mean, just specifically on the other side of this, because a little sadder. Oh, I, well, I mean, I also think but but also context wise, like to think about if he was that, you know, in November of last year, if he said that, if he knew that that's what I want to be remembered for, and then for him to pass a year later, essentially. And then, so now I'm very interested in reading his book, not just because he passed, but primarily because of the way we shape people in the media. Um, And, you know, when someone passes what that headline reads, right? Like, and, you know, I even, so to me, it's just interesting. And I wanted to point out that he did a lot of work with that. And that was a really big part of his life. And it sounded like, not to put words in his mouth, it sounded like that was the thing he was most proud of was giving advice and helping people with their own sobriety and their own life issues. I will will be very proud to be known uh, for real blend. In, in my, in right, my right. obituary, if that's the very first thing that people discuss, yeah, you're getting you're getting Snyder cut author. Uh, shit, you're probably right, uh, Jakey. Anything? Yeah, you know it's funny. I um I was trying to think back to the I only interviewed him one time, and it was years. It was so far back that it was before I was putting any of my stuff on YouTube. Like I don't even have the video anymore, which is a real shame. Uh, I remember him being incredibly charming and mm. very kind. And I remember him being sort of as, as a, a, a fan of friends, as, as was everyone. Uh, I remember him sort of being the exact person that I wanted him to be. Not not quite Chandler Bing, but just enough of of that charm in there where you see that where Chandler Bing came from. Um, and I remember him being very kind. And and yeah, you know, I think the the most tragic part of this, the the, the sort of the sinking feeling I had whenever I found out the news on Saturday night was that it really felt like he had turned a corner. Mm. It really felt like um, he was moving in the right direction. Um, the, the creator of Friends just said uh, in an interview that she just spoke to him two weeks ago and that he was in a really good place. Mm-hmm. And that that makes his passing all the more unfair and that it felt like he was moving in the right direction. And, and like Kevin said, was making it his life mission to help people who were in the same position as him. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, as much as we all love friends and love Chandler, I am with Kevin and that he made it incredibly clear that when he died, he wanted to be known for helping people and, and for, for, for when someone came to him and said, Hey, I'm, I'm having, uh, troubles, struggles with, with alcohol addiction. And he said, 
he could tell them, I, I understand that. Let me help you. And mm-hmm. you know what? I think that's a hell of a thing to be known for. And if that's the thing he wants to be known for, I will forever mention that long before I'll ever mention Chandler Bing. I do want to, I do want to mention, I do want to mention something as well, just because, um, I don't know how much I've mentioned this on the show before, but Matthew Perry in particular, but friends in particular is extremely important to me and extremely important uh, to my childhood. So I, I, since we do the podcast, I'd love to tell that story. Sure. Which is, um, growing up, we moved a lot. I'm one of those kids that moved through most of grade school all the way up to high school. I was basically at a new town or a new school like every year. Mm. And other than my immediate family, our stability was, uh, the stability I had was our VHS collection and our DVD collection. And that's kind of where the love for all of this started. But the one thing that we all had in common was mm. loving friends. So no matter if I lived in Georgia or I lived on a different side of this state or there, I always mm. ha- we always had friends. And so for it's me- your home. Friends yeah, your home. It, I didn't really unpack it until later in life, but very much like those sets, those characters, those episodes were, as a kid- stability which i think is important so even though we were moving wow. it was it was very much a safe place for me and again i didn't really understand that till later i can't mm. tell you i know everyone loves friends it's the biggest show ever but i can't tell you how many times i've seen them i mean they were just a part of our life of just having them on uh putting them on and just listening to them anything like that and matthew perry in particular and his character but also his roles outside of that while he was you know his his movie roles outside of that his sense of humor is very much a part of my sense of humor mm. um, in a huge, huge way. Like, like what I find funny comes from learning how funny he was. Um, so it, it's a tragic loss. My whole family kind of, we had like a text thread going and we were like kind of mourning him because it was, it was a big loss for, for all of us. So he was so young. He's 54, too young. Too 54, young. too young. I mean, but, Sean, you turned 54, like about 10, Years ago, right? Ten so years ago. So I've, I've been yeah. doing pretty good. I've been doing pretty good. No, but you know what's going to happen is that like we're going to get to this age now where like people who were extremely important to us growing up are going to yeah. start passing. Um, it's going to be that generation, and so, it's a uh, it's a reminder. I know it's a cliche, but it's a reminder to tell the people that you love that you love them, and and if there's somebody there that you appreciate, it's you know tell them you appreciate them. We put yeah. a lot of put a lot of hate and cynicism on the internet, but. You know, maybe reach out to even if they're rich and famous or whatever, you never know. Just if you feel passionate about something in a positive yeah. way, vocalize that if you can. And I do. Th- I think about the ending of Babylon a lot or that scene in Babylon where Brad Pitt is talking with um, uh, who's the right. Gene the, Smart. Gene yeah, Smart. About like, you know, someone generations later is going to turn on your movie and 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 meet you. Right. And I and I always say when someone passes that, like, you know, they're never really gone because they're they're what they've left on this earth is, you know, their legacy through the motion picture and, and, and television shows, but also the, obviously the work that Matthew was doing with sobriety and helping people. But you think 10, 15 years from now, someone pops on friends for the first time and they find joy from Matthew's performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, he's still alive in that way. He's still mm-hmm. delivering and healing and helping laughing is a huge thing that helps so many people it's so simple but it does it's the, one of the best what was it laughter is the best medicine so i just think it's interesting that while he's gone physically he will continue generationally to uh assist people with entertainment and and his sobriety well, stories and it's it cool. sounds silly it might sound superficial but i'm actually glad that they all did that reunion that aired recently yeah yeah because um, that group put off for the longest time 
you know, getting back together and, and doing the friends reunion, uh, I think because they understood the impact of it. And they obviously if they lost Matthew Perry, I doubt would ever have done it um, because it just wouldn't have the same impact. And so the fact that he got to experience that, the fact that he got to do what, you know, Gabe's mentioning the the significance of the sets. One of my favorite parts about that reunion is when they just go back onto the sets mm-hmm, and yeah. it instantly conjures all these memories um, of behind the scenes stuff to them, you know, uh, certain actors writing jokes, you know, down on the table or, you know, d- all these other memories that were triggered by, you know, sense memory. I, I found all that to be really, really fascinating. And so. the stories that are coming out about him. There was a story I read today about John Stamos when he I guess when he did a cameo on the show. I've actually I've seen friends in bits and pieces. I've never watched the whole series. Oh, you, um, you should. You start and, from the beginning and, and, and go all the way through. I want to. And, and, and when I was growing up, that was I was always more on. I was always a Seinfeld guy. I know they aired back to back, but I was sure, just, yeah. Seinfeld was my show. Um, but I think there was a Stamos Mine was, was the honeymooners, right? <laughs> but but they but were Stam- <laughs> Sean's were just cave paintings. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing this, but I think Stamos was on the show, and I think he came out and bombed uh, or something. And Matthew Perry like like helped the uh, helped him and helped the audience bring uh, give him confidence to continue. I'll, I'll find the story, but if you have, yeah. just look at look up John Stamos, Matthew Perry. It's a really cool story. Just it just you know again speaks to his character, I think, in an interesting way. So uh, head to the comments down below under the episode and let us know your favorite Matthew Perry project. Um, And if it happens to be friends, uh, then let us know what your favorite sort of Chandler moment or joke might be. Uh, And, and, you know, let's let's remember the actor for all that he accomplished. In the meantime, uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. You can follow us on social media at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach. And the show, as always, is at Real Blend. Because this damn strike won't end, we will continue to say, Hollywood, please, God, pay your actors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.